Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, May 3rd, we're studying 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10a. St. Peter turns his attention directly to the false teachers who are disturbing the Christian congregations in Asia. Their destruction will come, he says. And the Lord will rescue his people from their trials, as he has always done throughout the ages. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning. Let's get started with a bit of context today, Pastor Ulmer. What do we need to know about this epistle as a whole, what we've seen before, going into our text for today? Yeah, I think here in here in our text today, it's really the Apostle Peter uh, prepping Christians for the the trials that they are under and the trials that the Church is going to face in the future, namely that there are going to be many people who are going to, by their words and by their deeds, um, pull them away from the true faith. And he very... I, I kind of want to say uneloquently, very bluntly, uh, tells them uh, what is going to be in front of them. And also, towards the end of this section here, he he gives them a reminder as to uh, how they will escape uh, the false teaching. When we talk about suffering as a Christian, the epistle of First Peter, which we just finished here on Sharper Iron a little bit ago— that one really comes to mind as an epistle that teaches Christians how to suffer in this life and what it means to share in the suffering of Christ. And I think that the second Peter is, is not unrelated in the sense that it's, it, but it's a different kind of suffering. The suffering that seems in view in first Peter has to do with the suffering that Christians face from the world, from those outside wanting to attack, wanting to persecute you because you are a Christian, you know, to hate you, to mock you like Jesus himself received. In Second Peter, it seems that the suffering that's in view is the suffering that more comes from within, from the false teachers that attack. So it may not be a physical attack that Christians face here in Second Peter, but it is an attack, and it is a suffering of sorts. And that I think that's really going to come through in, in our text for today, how the Lord, just like he upholds his people in the midst of the suffering that the world brings, he also upholds his people in the midst of the suffering they endure from false teachers as well. Absolutely. I think that would, that would be a very fair way of characterizing what's going on here. You kind of see that the suffering that Christians are going to face from the false teachers inside the Church is just kind of the other side of the coin that Satan does use to kind of try to try to tear down God's Church, try to tear God, down what God is doing uh, in Christ Jesus. Now, before we look at the text particularly, you have in your notes here something about the similarities to the book of Jude. And we've mentioned this previously, at least in passing on Sharper Iron, particularly when we introduced the series back at the beginning of chapter one. Uh, before, Maybe before we get started with the particular text we have from Second Peter, what are some of the similarities that we're going to see with the book of Jude that would be good to highlight for us? 
Yeah. Um, in this in this particular small section of Second Peter, uh, being ten ten and a half verses, um, count no less than about four major similarities um, to the Book of Jude. I mean, Jude is a is a one chapter book, uh, twenty two or twenty three verses. Uh, excuse me there, but um, in Jude. Uh, it starts talking about um, false prophets, that there are people who have slipped in amongst the congregation and their job is to um, lead people astray. I think one of the, the things that is very interesting in Jude's choice of language is that um, in verse 4 of Jude, it says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Um, so Jude is really, really keying in on one aspect of what it means to be a false teacher, and I'm sure that we're going to talk about that more in our conversation. And then in verse 4 of Second Peter 2 um, is a parallel to Jude 6, talking about how when false teaching entered into creation, even with angels, that God did, does not spare um, them from their disobedience. In Second Peter two six, um, there's reference to Sodom and Gomorrah um, that is directly uh, referenced in the Book of Jude as an example to this kind of false teaching. And then in verse 10 of Second Peter 2, uh, talking about uh, specifically how, I mean, Peter, Peter talks about how the false teaching really is boiled down to people kind of chasing after their own sinful and unclean desires, and that theme is also brought up in Jude 8, 16, and 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of similarities that exist between Second Peter and Jude come in this chapter, chapter two. There's a few other places as well, but many of the similarities that we can notice are going to be in this chapter. And then, as you said, in the one chapter, that is the book of Jude, which we're actually going to look at after second Peter, we're going to look at the book of Jude with a couple of episodes as well. So a chance to do some compare and contrast in terms of the way that they use this. But I think it's, it's helpful at this point, just to notice that second Peter and Jude speak very similarly about false teachers and their false teaching, because as we read this, some of the language that Peter uses is going to be a bit shocking, I think, to our pious sensibilities. <laughs> we're going to... Absolutely. Right? I mean, you know, you're going to read Second Peter, and, and it's we're only getting to the first 10 and a half verses today. We're going to look at the rest of them tomorrow here in chapter two. And and at least, I mean, if, if you're honest, I think you might say, that's in the Bible? Peter said <laughs> that? I mean, it's it's pretty harsh. But I think seeing that there's two authors that make use of the same language is helpful to, to say, yeah, this is... This is the way that Christians can and do speak about false teaching. It's, it's, we're going to, I mean, again, pious sensibilities, beware. It, it's pretty harsh today. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure, because I, th- I think one thing I'd just like to add to that, too, is we kind of sometimes can get into the mindset that the, the, the people in antiquity, the people that were living in the world in Peter's time, in Jesus's time, and before that, they just don't. They just didn't have to deal with the same kind of perversions that we mm. deal with today. And 
that that's just not true. I mean, ever ever since the fall into to sin, people have been dealing with the kind of the most graphic and and lewd um, versions of our fallen nature, and they have been infecting the church, and they. I mean, they still they still do. So we always have to be on guard against them. Yeah, I mean, it's this again. There's nothing new under the sun to use the language of, of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And as we read today, and again tomorrow as well, in the rest of chapter two, there's going to be verses that it's like Peter was writing today in 2021. These words are, are quite <laughs> applicable to you and to me still. So let's take a look at the text. We are in Second Peter chapter two, beginning at the first verse. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the un excuse me, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. That is our text for today, second Peter two, verse one through ten A. Pastor Ulmer, the, the text really picks off right where Peter left off at the end of chapter one. At the end of chapter one, he was assuring his readers of the certainty of God's word. He and the other apostles witnessed it, he used the example of the transfiguration. And even more so, you've got the scriptures, the Old Testament prophets who wrote not from their own imagination or any man-made opinion, but wrote according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he's laid out the truth in chapter one, here's the foundation for you Christians. And now he's going to take them into in, in great detail as we see this matter of false teaching, that which attacks. And he's got that Old Testament background. He says, you know, false prophets, they arose among the people then, and now there's going to be false teachers among you. So take us into how Peter begins his argument here in chapter two. Yeah. It's the people that false prophets have been around, I mean, you could probably say from, from the fall into sin, and that um, I think the most interesting thing that, that Peter talks about is normally that when I think about false prophets, a lot of times I always think about false prophets being people who are simply false in their teachings. They're trying to they get something confused, and they and they teach wrong and lead people astray, or they're specifically teaching um, against God's word and leading people astray. And these kind of people uh, definitely did exist. Um, there are people who 
we're not happy with God and his actions in the Old Testament, and we're trying to get people to follow after other gods. And the preparation for, for this particular passage, one of, the, one of the texts that came up was Deuteronomy 13, where uh, Moses is warning the people about people who are going to come and uh, tell the people to go after other gods. And if, if that kind of teaching and that kind of speech were to enter into the people of Israel, that they were to completely reject him. So you, you, on one hand, you have people that have always come in and taught falsely in their, in their words and in their confession, but that's uh, not where Peter, nor his reference to false teaching in, in the Old Testament, where that's not the only place where it led. So I think this is an important point, and, and one that, again, maybe we're not as prone to think about today. I mean, when I think about false teaching in, in our day, I think of what the teaching actually is. So, you know, name it and claim it kind of prayer theology, or, you know, the so-called prosperity gospel, uh, various, various, the social gospel, things that, you know, I mean, you, you could name various false teachings that are out there. But Peter, and he, and Peter does talk about this, and I think he's going to do a little more of it when we get to chapter three. We're going to get a bigger sense of what the false teaching actually was. But the false teaching itself doesn't come out here in chapter two as much as the false living that goes along with it. Yeah, and I, and I think that's kind of where I was leading to in the next part. Uh, what, what, so normally what I think of false teaching is probably not what Peter is aiming at here. More, more likely, and the reason why I say more likely is because I think it's pretty clear in his argument that he is more concerned with false teaching that's done by action. So people coming into the camp of God's people, confessing that they believe in God and his life-giving story, and then by their deeds, showing their faithlessness, and more than showing their faithlessness, also causing other people to follow them in their faithlessness. So by their, their false teaching and their false living, by their licentious living, thank you, Jude, again, mm. they, they cause people to walk off the, the path that God has designed for humanity. Let's let's talk a little bit about the false living, and then let's let's try to pick up some of the things that he says about their teaching, because I don't think it's completely absent from this text. But let's start with the false living, because I do think that that comes through the clearest in these first three verses. You know, he mentions sensuality in verse two. He mentions greed in verse three. Those two themes, those two motives, seem to really be the the driving factors for these false teachers: their sensuality and their greed. Yeah, and I mean, what what are the, the two kind of areas of human life and human sinfulness that always seem to capture humans, both those who are outside of the church and those who are in? Sensuality being issues dealing with human sexuality and um, that kind of imagery and greed dealing with money. I mean, it's, it's just perfectly set up here for these false teachers to come in and play into our kind of fallen nature and our, our desire to go after these two, two particular pet sins. Hmm. 
And it seems like the greed would be the motive behind it. This is why these false teachers are active, because they can get something out of it for themselves. Yeah. And the, the matter of sensuality has to do more with this is the enticement. This is why you you Christians listen to us because of look at the way that we can live. Look, I mean, look, this is wonderful, isn't it? That's kind of the, you've got means and motive, I think, they're going hand in hand. Yeah. Hey, hey you Christian, I have a teaching that will allow you to do whatever you want. I won't tell you what you can and can't do. Uh, it, God didn't really say say that, did he? And then they have a motive to to teach that way, because of course that's going to be popular, and if it's popular, you'll you'll draw crowds, and hopefully if you draw crowds, uh, hopefully you will benefit off of it, right? And I mean, that's kind of the goal. Right. Yeah, those two things often go hand in hand. And I think, I mean, as, as we're talking yeah. here, you start to see some of what is very likely involved in the actual false teaching, this matter of sensuality coming up here in the example that Peter uses in verses 4 through 10, and then especially in the text that we're going to look at tomorrow, the rest of chapter 2, this matter of, of sensuality being such a, an important factor in, in the way these false teachers are living, a part of their false teaching, and again, thank you to Jude, seems to be this matter of licentiousness, this lawlessness, to use the, the theological term, and maybe you can expand on this antinomianism. This seems to be at least part of the false teaching that Peter's combating, combating here. Yeah, and I, I think that's a very fair and good way of putting it. And for us Lutherans, it's always something that we have to keep in the forefront of our minds, because we are kind of a church that's that's based on the tradition of the rediscovery of the gospel. We are people that understand that we are saved solely by what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and in his glorious resurrection. And through the centuries, that has sometimes caused us as Lutherans to become antinomian, to have kind of a more negative view of the law, because we were reacting so much against uh, a church that said, you must do this to be saved, and, and uh, Luther and the, the, the preceding reformer said, no, this is, this is what God's done. But at the same time, if you, if you deny the law, this, this teaching of antinomianism or, or licentiousness can creep in, because um, if, if we don't hear what God has to say about human design— about how he wants us to act, how he wants us to live holy lives. If we if we don't talk about that in a helpful way, then we can always fall into this cheap grace trap where we can convince ourselves in our minds, oh, Jesus Christ has died for me, he's covered all my sins, therefore uh, when I want to do X or Y, whatever that particular pet sin is, we can kind of give ourselves license. We can excuse ourselves and participate in those actions that God has not given us to participate. And in doing so, uh, we kind of fall down into this trap where we end up being the ones who, by our theology, by our false teaching, uh, end up trying to justify ourselves. And when we end up justifying ourselves, we get that the trap gets sprung on us, and we end up declaring ourselves, we confess 
by it with our actions that we believe that we are God. Hmm. Well, and I think that's exactly what Peter says here, because the, the place where their false teaching, or at least the end of their false teaching, comes through the clearest in our text for today is where Peter says that they even deny the master who bought them. That, that ultimately, where this false teaching leads and what they're doing in their false teaching by their by both their false teaching and their false living is they are denying that Jesus is their master, their Lord, who has, by his holy precious blood, bought them out of that terrible way of life. I mean, I think about those passages from, from 1 Peter that impress upon Christians the importance of holy living. And Peter there very much grounds that in the gospel, particularly there in chapter one of first Peter again, where he he says, you know, think about how you were ransomed from that futile, worthless way of life, not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And and here, that's the the basis for what's going on here. Why is this false teaching so dangerous? Ultimately, it's because they're denying the master who bought them, as you said. They're making themselves into gods. Dwell on that a little bit more for us, because I really think that's the key to these first several verses. Yeah, this conversation always reminds me of uh, of a parishioner that I had served here in Bishop for a while. He has now since been been transferred and moved on, but I'll never forget a conversation that we had in adult Bible class here. And he always and he made this statement, and it, and it always has sat with me. He said. Uh, humans are not rational creatures, we're rationalizing creatures. Uh-huh. And when when we fancy ourselves intelligent, when we fancy ourselves good theologians, we have the capacity to even pervert God's word to the point that we we can twist and we can deny and we can try to explain our our way out of our sin, because at the end of the day, one of the enemies that we fight is our own flesh. Mm-hmm. Our sinful nature is at war against God and wants to have control over itself. And any time that we give our flesh room to to justify itself, it's it's gonna it's gonna take that opportunity. I mean, let's be honest. Who who here doesn't want to do what they want to do? And if you can justify it if you can if you can find a way of muting your conscience or if you have another person who claims to be a godly teacher telling you that you can man that that sure sounds like a good thing i can i can be a child of god and i can do what i want sounds great unfortunately that's not the that's not the witness that we have in scripture hmm. Yeah, I mean, we we are always self-justifying creatures yeah. as as sinners. This is this is our first move, and it it can be as as simple as posting something, say on social media. Someone disagrees with you, and the first ask, you know, your first instinct is to defend yourself, to justify yourself. That's and that's maybe a very basic, you know, not as harmful kind of example, but it just goes to show that generally, as as people as sinful people our first move is to justify ourselves and when we do that before god then that's where we get into this this kind of what peter's talking about here at the beginning and particularly these false teachers who are who are doing this on purpose that's i mean that to me that's what really stands out in this whole chapter and again yeah. it'll come out more in the next text again but just the the willful purposeful 
nature of these false teachers. This is and this is a distinction we've made before in other texts, particularly let's say in the pastoral epistles that we've studied here on Sharper Iron, that that we distinguish between the false teacher and the falsely taught. Peter is very much here talking about false teachers. He's not talking about those who, who I mean, he will talk about the consequences for those who might be led astray, but he's, he is giving the harshest words of judgment and condemnation for the false teachers, those who are purposely, willfully, boldly leading people astray into this licentious sensuality, all for the sake of their own greed. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's for a good reason, because I think Peter and the rest of the apostles and pastors throughout the ages understand that licentiousness is a gateway to falling away from the faith, Hmm. because over time, this is what sin does. Hmm. If we are told by our teachers that our sin is okay, then we have no reason to repent, and if we have no reason to repent, we don't. Right. I mean, I think of the the words to the prophet Ezekiel, where the Lord tells him, you know, if you warn the sinner of his way and he doesn't repent, then he'll die in his sin. But but you will have done your job to, to paraphrase the yeah. Lord there. But if you don't warn the sinner of his way and he doesn't repent, then he will still die in his sin. But now his blood will be on you. And, and so false yeah, teachers then- particularly bear a, a very great guilt. Yeah, and I I think with that Ezekiel uh, passage, you're dealing with teachers who merely don't call out the sin. What happens when the the teachers are actively teaching the people that their sin is okay? Yeah, yeah. it's just yeah, and that's that's what Peter's talking about here. And we're going to keep looking that here on Sharp Iron. We're looking at Second Peter chapter two with Pastor Matt Ulmer. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, May 3rd. We're studying 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10a with Pastor Matt Ulmer. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Elmer, prior to the break, we were talking about these false teachers whom Peter is condemning very harshly with very clear language. They are out for themselves trying to get money. They're greedy. They're asking people to follow them in their licentious living. And what they're ultimately doing is they're denying that Jesus is Lord, the one who has given his blood to shed the give pay the price for their sins to buy them out of that terrible way of life they're refusing that and peter says their punishment their destruction is coming and he really gets into that in verses 4 through again 10a 
after that in 10b and following, that's where he's going to really pick up again with their sins and the way that these things play out. But before he does that in the remainder of the text we've got, he's going to give several Old Testament examples. And Peter loves to do this. We've seen him do this in his first epistle. He's doing it here in his second, where he grounds what he's saying in the Old Testament. So he gives three three different examples by my count. The first one has to do with angels in verse four. What is what is Peter talking about with God did not spare the angels when they sinned? Yeah. I mean, Peter is referencing here, I believe, kind of the original initial rebellion in creation where where God created the world and he he set it up and it was good. And God had these creatures, the angels, his messengers, his servants. And at a, at a point, there was a number of them who rebelled. I mean, the most famous of these being uh, Satan himself, being the angel of light, wanting a more power and authority for himself, thinking that he would be a better God than God, leading the rebellion. And what happened when they uh, rebelled against God? Well, they found themselves uh, outside of his grace, outside of his presence. Um, I think you get a couple passages that clarify this a little bit, being Revelation 20 and 25, where it's spoken about that for these angels who rebelled against their purpose, their created purpose by God, that a prison and was set for them and that their judgment was going to be everlasting death. Mm-hmm. Right. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 25, where he, you know, he says yeah. the, the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Peter, again, Peter's bringing an Old Testament example up here. And, and maybe it's it's helpful before we continue in this more specific way of looking at it, just to kind of zoom out here for a moment and get the feel for what Peter's doing in verses, again, 4 through 10a, because I really think you have to see the whole picture, too. It's, it's basically one big, what I would call an if-then statement. It's just that the mm-hmm. if is really long and the then is kind of long, too. So he's, yeah. he's, he's going to use three different ifs. You know, if God did this with the angels— if he did it with Noah, and if he did it with Sodom and Gomorrah at the time of Lot, then, that's and the then comes in verse 9, then this is what he will do still today. And it's going to be a twofold thing. The, the if is, if God judged those who are ungodly and false teachers, and if he saved his own, then he will also do that still for you, dear Christians, living in the midst of these false teachers. That's kind of the the big picture of what we're talking about here. I, I think it's just helpful to have that that view in mind as we dig into these specifics. Yeah, I, I also find that to be a very helpful way of dealing with this text. Right. So so if then, and the, so the first part of the if is this matter of, well, think about what God did with these angels who rebelled. And as you, you pointed, there are several places where we could consider. You've got Revelation, you've got the, the book of, of Matthew, where Jesus talks about you know, the fire that's prepared for them. The The words for, for cast them into hell here are, it's related to the Greek word Tartarus, if I'm not mistaken, which is the like the deepest depths of hell. I mean, this is so Peter again is using very strong language here for if God did this when his angels rebelled against him, then think about 
what does that mean for these false teachers here and now that you are dealing with that, that Peter's writing to and for you and for me still today? That's the the if then when it comes to these these angels. Any more to add there with verse four? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say this kind of generally about all three of these examples that we're going to. I mean, if you want to be completely honest, Peter could have probably stopped his argument at four. Mm. For if God did this kind of extreme punishment for his angels, uh, part of his perfect creation, then what do you think he is going to do to false teachers? Because God God doesn't change. Mm. I mean, God is holy. He expects his creation to uh, obey him. And when it didn't in this case, there was punishment. So if it doesn't in another case, what should we expect from an unchanging God? Mm. Yeah, I mean, he, he could have stopped with the one example, but I'm glad he, he didn't. <laughs> I'm, yeah, and the... I, I, I agree with that. I, I think right. it's very good for us that he didn't, but That's he right. could have. That's right. Yeah, far be it from us to question the way that that the Holy Spirit inspired the the prophet or the the apostle to to write it. But I, and here's the reason I would I say that I'm glad that he didn't is because that in this first part of the if that if God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, you only get one side of of the yeah. if. You only get the judgment. What he's going to do in the next two examples that he brings up is you get that for if God did not stop his judgment, but he's also going to add, and also remember in these cases, God saved his people. And and that's where, I, again, I'm glad that Peter didn't stop with just the one example. And it, it seems, you know, this is why the Holy Spirit inspired him to keep going is because yeah. that's what the Christians in Peter's day and Christians still today that we need as well, not only to know that judgment is coming upon the false teachers, but also that the Lord is going to deliver us and save us out of their midst. I mean, there's there's both things going on. And both of those things are going to come out in the next two examples in this if clause. So let's let's go to the the second one, Pastor Almer. The second one deals with Noah. So again, give us both parts. The what about the judgment? But now, what about the salvation? Does Peter bring out in terms of Noah? Yeah. So so Noah is always one of those wonderful stories that's taught in the the Christian church from. From young, young, young on, I mean, I've I've read multiple uh, stories to my children about Noah from various children's Bibles and various devotions over the years. It's always one of those big, big stories. And that story starts off with uh, Moses telling the people that the the reason why the entire Moses or Noah narrative happens at all is because humanity had become wicked to the point that their their hearts and their desires was nothing but wickedness all the time. I mean, from the fall, from Adam and Eve's fall to the time of Noah, humanity had already gotten so corrupt that there was not uh, almost no one there who had God and his righteousness in their minds. Hmm. I mean, things were bad. Hmm. Sure. And I mean, you get that here, you know, the beginning of verse five is it's given in the ESV. If he did not spare the ancient world that then continues, you know, the flood upon the world of the ungodly, there's, there's the, yeah. the judgment, right? And this is, again, think about the, the scope that we're talking in the first example, it's, it's angels. The second example, we're talking the whole world here that, I mean, you know, world. the whole world other than, and this is where 
this is where the the side of the rescue comes out, the salvation, other than Noah. Now, what is what does Peter have yeah. to say about Noah here? Yeah. So in this this, this whole story, I mean, the the judgment ends up being that it rains for 40 days and 40 nights and water covers the entire world up to a depth of every mountain being covered by 20 feet. Sounds like a a pretty extreme flood designed to do exactly what it uh, did, which was kill everything that dwelt on the land. But before God sent the judgment in form of the flood, he went to Noah, a man who was righteous, who believed God and his promises, and said, hey, Noah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy the world, but you build a boat. And the amazing thing is, is that Noah wasn't just righteous and faithful in his, in his thoughts and his considerations. Noah was faithful in his actions because when God told him to build, and when God gave him the measurements of the boat to build, he did it. And while he was building, uh, the the wicked people of the world constantly came up to him and made fun of him, that he was spending all this time and all this treasure and all this effort to build this boat. But Noah believed God, and when the rain started falling, Noah's faith was vindicated because inside of that ark were he, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, eight souls in all, and enough of the animals to repopulate the world so that when the flood waters went down, when the judgment was complete, um, life could once again begin in God's mercy upon the world that he created. The the thing that I find particularly comforting about the way it's phrased here in Second Peter is it was a couple things. One is that he calls Noah a herald of righteousness. And and you you know you you were getting at this when you were talking about how people were were mocking Noah. And and what was he doing? He wasn't only he wasn't suffering silently. He was he was suffering, you yeah. know, I mean no, certainly he was, but he was preaching he was proclaiming he was. the righteousness that was his by faith, calling the mockers, the scoffers, the false teachers around him to repent. And I find that particularly comforting in this context because, I mean, think about the, the people in Peter's day and in our day who are being attacked on every side by this false teaching. And, and what do we have? We have the word. And that's enough. That's we have. You know, that's enough. It's what Noah had. And, and it's enough. And then the other thing that I think this also points us to, and you, I, I, I think you did this on purpose, Pastor Almar, the way you phrased, you know, Noah and his family, eight souls in all, which is from first yeah. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> I, I mean, I think Peter's doing the same thing here too, that by bringing yeah. up Noah again in his second epistle, calling him a herald of righteousness, not only invites us to consider the defense that is ours in the word, but also the salvation that God has given us in holy baptism, because that's how that's how Peter brought Noah up in the first epistle. I'll let you take it from there, because I think that's where you were going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ab- absolutely. I mean, that was a direct a direct quote there from First Peter three. But not only is it First Peter three, but for anybody who is listening to this show, um, really pay attention when you're in church and there's baptisms going on. Because that is part of our baptismal liturgy. This is rooted in 
in what God has done to save his people, that through the waters of baptism we are saved, just like God saved uh, Noah and his family through through those waters in the flood by means of the ark. Hmm. I mean, it's it, it's just so good. It really is. And I, I love the, that, the connection that he makes in these two epistles to, to, to use Noah as that the way to bring out baptism in both of them. So the third example that he gives here in the if, and, and it's interesting, I don't know if this is on purpose, it seems to be it, it's getting more localized. He starts with the angels, then he goes to the entire world, and now he's going to two cities that received judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah. And this one, it seems is the, the at least he takes the longest amount of time in terms of the judgment that came, as well as then at the time he talks about the salvation that was given to the righteous. First, give us the, the condemnation. We're talking Sodom and Gomorrah here. Fill in the background in case we've forgotten what's going on there in Genesis. Yeah, so Sodom and Gomorrah is one of, I mean, probably the most famous and most graphic examples in the Bible of condemnation. And by condemnation, I'm not saying that it's an example of God speaking very harsh words against uh, some people who are acting inappropriately. Because by the time the judgment comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, hellfire and brimstone are raining down on two cities of man, and all those who are in that valley die that day. I mean, this ends up being a very, very harsh judgment. What is, um, what is the sin that they are condemned for? Well, uh, sensuality, sexual perversion— licentiousness, all of the things that we talked about in the beginning of this message. Um, and that's kind of where the judgment side goes. I don't know if you want to uh, add anything there before we go into the rest of the story dealing with the salvation. Only only to say is, as you were talking there about the, the actual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, it, it is quite striking, again, how it, it seems he's getting more specific here. That, you know, he's, he's been speaking on very grand scope. You know, you've got the angels who rebel in their pride against God. You've got the whole world that's full of ungodly people. And then he, he brings it really pretty close to home with what Peter's hearers would have been dealing with when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and again, cities that were known for their, their sensuality as the reason for this destruction that comes upon them. So it's, I think it's striking how he, he orders this and makes it more and more specific to those that are, that are hearing him. Now, again, this Sodom and Gomorrah has two sides to it. He's talked about the condemnation that they received. He, he turned those cities to ashes and brought them to extinction, in fact. I mean, this is very harsh language. But then he brings out the righteous side, how the Lord also rescued again. And here he talks about Lot. So tell us a little bit about Lot. Yeah, so before God sends his judgment, if you remember your, your Bible in Genesis— God sends three messengers to Sodom and Gomorrah well in advance of what God is doing. And Abraham is living in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot is too. And you can remember the, the old, uh, the wonderful story where Abraham, of course, pleads for the cities, God, will you will you do this judgment if there are so many righteous people in the city, and God says, if you, if you find 50 people in the city, I won't destroy it, and if there's 40, I won't destroy it, and 30, and finally 10. 
and Abraham pleads and gets God's God to agree, and when they go out and canvass the city, of course they don't find enough righteous people there. And then um, Abraham leaves, and Lot ends up leaving. There, there was some hesitancy by Lot to leave, and God was even very patient with Lot and sent, sent people in to extract Lot and his uh, family. And when they were kind of clear of the city, they were said they were told. Uh, that you are to leave the city now and don't look back. Um, the God has spared you and uh, the punishment that he is going to enact on Sodom and Gomorrah, you do not need to see. And of course, you have Lot's wife who was saved from what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, but she did not listen to the word of the Lord and, and turn back and turn into a pillar of salt. So you kind of get multiple... You get multiple examples of God giving his word, people believing, people not believing. Uh, so you see a, a big cycle of condemnation and salvation in Sodom and Gomorrah. The thing that stands out to me about Lot, particularly, and Peter's use of him here, you know, Peter calls him, for example, in verse 7, righteous Lot. And then in verse 8, he, he says, as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. When, when you read Genesis 18 and 19, which is where these events are recorded, Lot doesn't always strike me as righteous. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I concur with that. <laughs> that's not probably the, the adjective that I would have put in front of Lot's name is righteous. And I, I, so here's, but this is what I, I think about it. And I, this is what I make of it. And I think there's comfort here is that remember the righteousness that we're talking about. And this applies to Noah too, is the, the righteousness that comes through faith. And, and yeah. that's the righteousness that Lot had. And that's the righteousness that Noah had through their sins. Some of which are, I mean, and, you know, and Noah, if you keep reading after the flood, you get that account where he's drunk and he's certainly not yeah. engaging in righteous living at that moment. It may be that sort of you know, unrighteous living comes out a little more clearly, it seems, in the story of Lot. But the thing that binds them together is that they have the righteousness that comes by faith, the righteousness that comes because yeah. they trust the one true God. And I think that's that's comforting to hear Lot used as an example here, because in those moments where I know my own righteousness is not is not right, I still have the righteousness that covers me in Christ. And I say that not in the licentious way that we were talking about earlier, but in a way that simply recognizes this is who I am. I'm a sinner. I've got my flesh and and that flesh constantly has to be put to death. And and when it pops up again, thanks be to God that he plunges it back underneath those waters of baptism for me. Yeah. And that's a tremendous gift that I think understanding that our righteousness comes from Christ alone should do, I think, two very, very powerful things for us. Number one, it should make us absolutely grateful and absolutely joyous in what Christ has done. I mean, I think this is at least part of the reason why we as Christians love Easter so much, why we can with joy uh, greet each other with uh, with the Easter greeting, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, Alleluia. Because what he did for us on that cross and in that tomb is the only reason that we have a relationship with a righteous God. So that's kind of one end of, of that argument. The other one is always to always to remind us that 
we we have this the capability or we should be comforted in the fact that no matter how much we struggle that that Christ loves us and did this for us anyway mm-hmm. so that we we ought to trust his word we ought to dedicate ourselves to his word we ought to live as his people but even when we when we fail like i mean like you said specifically like lot did in genesis 19 lot wasn't going to leave the city and god sent his angels and said no lot you leave hmm. and and eventually he did listen i mean there, there's part of us as christian that the saint side that at the end of the day yes we people who are loved and called by Jesus, we do listen to his call. We do repent of our sins. We do come to receive his gifts. And through those things, we are saved. Mm, right. I mean, that what you were saying there takes me back to what Peter began this epistle with in verse 3 of chapter 1, where he, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I mean, the all of this that we have, this is all God's gift to us and what he has given. Yes. It is enough. It, it, it's, it's what we need. And it is effective as he, he makes the case there in chapter one as well. And that's why he's urging us not to forget it as well. Uh, we got about five minutes here, Pastor Elmer. I want to make sure we get to the then statement. So we've, we've covered four through eight, which again is sort of one long if statement in three parts. If God acted this way in the past, then... He will act this way for you here and now. Take us into to verses 9 and 10a. Yeah, so I, th- I think that the the key to understanding this is, as I said before, we have a God who doesn't change. And how has God always saved his people? The answer is, God makes promises to his people. God keeps his promises to his people. And God expects his people to trust that he will keep his promises to his people. So, I mean, in these particular examples here with, with Noah and Lot, they God told them what he was going to do and how they were going to be saved, and they were saved by believing God's word. The same goes for us today in the church. God has told us, how he will save us from all means of punishment, and that is by believing in the name of his Son, whom he sent to be born of the flesh of the Virgin Mary, whom he had suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was buried in a tomb, and who he, after three days, raised him from the grave, defeating death forever. We as Christians' people must always confess the Christ who died and was raised for us and and live in accordance with his calling uh, to us. That is what we have been given in the Church. That's what we have been given as Christians, and we don't really have anything else. So no matter what kind of false teaching, no matter what kind of calls of licentiousness we are facing in our modern day, and I know that we didn't go into it too specifically in this particular a show, but no matter what comes before us, we have one job to to preach the message that we have been given and to trust that God's uh, mercy and his salvation in Jesus is all sufficient for all of our needs. Mm. Well, I mean, that, that goes right back to, again, the, the text that was right before this one, where Peter was assuring us and his readers of 
the all sufficiency of God's word. You know, I mean, the, that yeah. you have everything that you need in that word of God, which wasn't made up by man, but came from God himself. And, and now here he's taking that and applying it to us in the midst of this suffering, this false teaching that exists. That word is, in fact, enough. You know, one little word can fell him, to use the, the quote Amen. from Martin Luther. That's enough. The Lord, through that word, and then, of course, connected to water and holy baptism to get that Noah reference in there. Yeah, that that word will rescue you from your trials. And so don't be afraid in the midst of this false teaching. Don't don't shy back from being that herald of righteousness along with Noah, because that word is effective. It will do what God intends and it will save you from from your enemies now and, and ultimately forever. Pastor Ron, well, just about a minute, help us wrap things up this morning. Yeah, I think the the last thing I want to say there is as just a pastoral reminder to the church that Christ is sufficient for the church. Christ is sufficient for you. And we need not be tempted by the different means and teachings and um, temptations of this world. We have always had everything that we need because we have Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on him, for he has uh, destroyed death, he has conquered the grave, and he is coming with righteousness in his wings on the last day to to call you his uh, child and his servant and his friend. Pastor Matt Ulmer is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas, helping us this morning with 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10a. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. It was a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about 2 Peter chapter 2 or any of the epistle coming up or the epistle of St. Jude, which we'll look at next, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you, help you sharpen your faith in Christ. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.